Genre. Franchiseography, the podcast that digs deep into the entire filmographies of Hollywood's biggest film franchises. I'm Scott Corelli. I'm Nick Jimenez. Today we are continuing our mini-series on the live-action films of Wes Anderson with his fifth film released in 2007, The Darjeeling Limited. And we have a guest joining us to talk about estranged brothers, train travel, and baggage of both the emotional and literal kind is fellow podcaster Chad Oliver. Welcome, Chad. Hey, Hey, Scott. Well, thank you for welcoming me on your show. I do podcast. I promise I podcast. It's been a rough morning, as I told you, off pod. My brain is just not there yet. That's fair. (laughs) Hoping to turn the day around. Yeah. Hoping to. One of my favorite movies of all time. So Yeah, and I'm uh, I'm curious. I'm very curious to get into that. Before we do, though, I want to know about your sort of Wes Anderson journey in terms of like, what was the first movie of his that you saw? How did you become a fan? And then I want to know more about about Darjeeling Limited being your favorite of his films and maybe one of your favorite Mm -hmm. films of all time, because... That is not a popular thought. No, a lot of people, it's like their least favorite of his films. Yeah. And um, it's just something I disagree with. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's his best. It probably isn't his best one. I think like he like masters the form in uh, eventual movies that you'll talk about. But I think it's his most human movie. Sure. Um, I love all three characters. We'll get into them, I'm sure. But um, my history starts, my uncle recommended this movie, Moonrise Kingdom. Mm. Um, he saw it, got a kick out of it, thought I would too. And uh, it was the first movie I ever saw alone in a movie theater. And it was a transformative experience. I'd never seen a movie like it. Didn't even like at that time I loved movies, but I wasn't like a movie nerd, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in high school and, uh, I loved all the popular movies, but it, it took a while before I like discovered that there was a whole world of film out there that like, uh, that wasn't like a, a major popular blockbuster movie yeah so a a few years went by i never like looked up wes anderson or his filmography after that and then um i (laughs) well that's the only one i need to see it was a hugely transformative experience that i never sure but like i just didn't think (laughs) of movies that way back then sure um small town alabama everyone was more into cars and sports and i was just sort of went to a very small school um loved movies but like it was in college i found more of like a community of people that loved movies and i you know Learn more. Heard people talking about Wes Anderson, and I didn't even know the name, but uh, uh, they mentioned Moonrise Kingdom, and I was like, "Oh, I love that movie. I'll watch more of his movies." And uh, uh, watched through the entire filmography in college, and uh, yeah, this one was my favorite one, Darjeeling Limited. So, what is it about this movie that you love so much? I think Wes Anderson, and I, I love his movies, but often his characters to me can feel a little bit like. Uh, puppets in a puppet show, just sort of like, because, you know, his movies are so, what's the specific. word? Meticulous, specific. Meticulous, yeah. That it just feels like the, the people don't feel real and like lived in. And these three brothers do to me. They just feel like 
a little more human than I'm used to in Wes Anderson. Not to say that other characters haven't like risen, but this is like the most um, for me. I love how like it's all filmed on a train <laughs> and like Wes Anderson had to like drop a little bit of the control that he's uh, obsessed with um, to, to make this movie. And yeah. uh, I think it shows in the, in the movie, like it's just a little bit messier than, uh, a, than what his movies would eventually become at least. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Nick, what are your thoughts on, on Darjeeling limited? You know, I'm going to sound like a broken record to the listeners at this point, but it was a movie that I saw once mm-hmm. on uh, this one on DVD, mm-hmm. like after it had been released in theaters and um, I watched it once. I remember enjoying it and then I hadn't revisited it again until the show and I got a lot more out of it the second time. And um, I, I agree with Chad. I think it is a pretty underrated, um, <clears throat> you know, part of the filmography. And there's a weight to it mm-hmm. that, you know, I mean, like, even like Royal Tenenbaums is is a very, you know, feel like the characters in that movie feel very real. And as designed as they are, they still like they're the things they go through are very emotionally affecting. But there's just kind of like a a dirtiness and a, and a grit to the, mm-hmm. the, the world that these characters are living in and like not to jump a little bit ahead, even like their New York, it feels very different than the, t- the New York of the Royal Tenenbaums. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. just a, a really interesting part of his filmography. I'm really excited to talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for me, this was a movie that I saw. I've seen one time. Um, and I watched it once around when it came out and was like, well, that was a dud. And was like, <laughs> just never thought about it really again, other than like, you know, uh, re- referencing like my own, uh, disappointment and, uh, 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 you know, negative thoughts about the movie, um, as like his worst one. Um, but and you then, came so, around this time, you watched yeah. it again, and you realized, oh, I was wrong. This is the masterpiece. This is his best movie. Yeah, I right? wouldn't go that far, <laughs> but but um, but I do, you know, I am the oldest of three brothers and mm-hmm. uh that I grew up with, and we are um, you know, estranged in not the way not in a way that like we don't like each other or or anything like that. We just sure. don't we all have our own separate lives, you know, and it's a thing that I think happens to brothers a lot where, you know, because of the patriarchy, you sort of <laughs> become the patriarch of your own family and sure. that and and when you have these brothers, they go and they do the same thing. And so, you know, yeah. you all have these separate lives that you're sort of like the patriarch of and it makes it difficult to uh, hold on to a relationship with your brothers, I think, mm-hmm. unless you have a really, really strong, um, you know, like friendship, like relationship with them. Yeah. And as the, uh, as the middlest of, of three brothers, uh, I think I connect to the movie in the exact ways you're talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's another reason why just like the parallels of life, not that like we have the exact same relationship as, uh, Peter, Jack and Francis, but just, uh, the way these brothers relate to each other mm-hmm. still is like, Hashtag relatable. It's great. Yeah. yeah. When I watch most films or television shows about siblings or that feature siblings, I always feel disconnected from them when they're like, you can tell me anything. Like, we're best friends. Like, <laughs> yeah. We, we, and Wes Anderson, better than most film, American filmmakers, at least, understand that families are mostly 
constructs of like lies and secrets totally and, like the and, two of us can talk about something but don't tell the other brother and then the two of us can talk about something right but don't yeah. tell the other brother or, yeah that's, i didn't i didn't know so and so did this or i didn't know that mm-hmm. happened or you know and right. like that's like yeah that that and so yeah the, the the brotherhood in this movie uh yeah feels so uh real i yeah, think you yes. know in a way that you know was anderson movies get dismissed a lot for like like you said like being like you know living dollhouses Right. Because, mm-hmm. like, the idea of family is such a strange thing, right? Mm-hmm. Because there are these people that we hang out with because we have no choice, because we were born mm-hmm. into this group of people. And sometimes, especially in like holiday situations, you like, Go, you're like, well, I have to go hang out with Uncle Jack. Guy's a fucking asshole. He voted for Trump, you know, (laughs) and all he's going to do is like talk about football and guns, but I have to deal with it because he's family, you know, and it's, and it's just this really weird thing that like you choose your friends, but then family are these people that you just, get stuck it happens with. to you it, it just yeah. happens to you ha- family happens to you right. and and you allow friendships to happen you know with yeah with you yeah or whatever. there's this really amazing scene i feel like this is a really easy movie to just like talk over stuff so i feel better about bringing stuff out of order sure but mm. when they're like camping out in in the yes. wilderness uh jason schwartzman has that line of like i wonder if we could have been friends in real life like right. yeah. if we had not brothers. as brothers but as people and yeah. adrian brody <laughs> replies yeah i bet we probably would have had a better shot yeah uh-huh. yeah yeah Which sometimes feels true yeah families mm-hmm. yeah because it doesn't come with all that baggage and because you know when you have friends you're not expected to share every little thing about your life but like anything that you withhold from family especially family that's supposed to be as close as like a brother or your mother or father it feels like you are being deceitful You know, whereas like not sharing something with a friend, well, it's just none of their business, you know, but it just there's (laughs) this weird thing with family where it's like, well, everything's our business, you know. And I I think that expectation that we, at least in America, are kind of instilled upon is, I don't know, this like weird, the expectation, I think expectation is such a key word in this movie Mm -hmm. because like Owen Wilson's character has such expectations for the, you know, like like the very early on when they're all in the train, he's like, "We haven't we haven't spoken in a year. That's not mm-hmm. good." And it's like, "Well, why? Why isn't right. that good?" And it's like, "Well, cause families are supposed to be in each other's shit and talk and and, and uh, like be regularly communicating, right? Right? Yeah." And it's kind of challenging. Like, well, does it have to be true, or you know, do they want to do that for right. each other? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um. So okay. So getting into the uh the sort of um production of this movie and and uh everything you know we have to go back of course to the um absolute (laughs) failure (laughs) of the life aquatic um of film that cost 50 million dollars and uh didn't even make its production budget back let alone um it's insane uh distribution and marketing budget um which was probably brought the movie up to around 100 million dollars uh, yeah. It was inexplicably because it was released in December, an awards contender. Right. Because I remember reading Entertainment Weekly in those days and being, it didn't even get nominated for any Oscars. And like now that that seems so foolish because that, that's not the kind of movie this was. But like you like you said, like promotional campaign release schedule stuff. Right. Right. So um, so the movie flopped and uh, it was it was uh, critically, you know, pretty, pretty, um, if not. 
it was basically the beginning of people being tired of the Wes Anderson thing. That was uh, kind of the big criticism is that Life Aquatic lacked the heart and substance of Royal Tenenbaums and was all right. pastiche. Right, right. And so when that movie flopped, Touchstone Pictures, which was on its way out at this point, basically said that, you know, we've had enough. <laughs> no more. <laughs> Um, we, we don't, we don't need to make another Wes Anderson movie. We, We're not going to bankroll your next, you know, expedition or whatever. Right. You do next. Right. Uh, and, and also, you know, Bob Iger at this point had taken over Disney and was in the process of shuttering touchstone pictures, though <laughs> the underlying thing is that, um, the life aquatic heavily contributed to that fact, oh, okay. uh, because it was such a massive flop. Mm-hmm. Um, they lost mm-hmm. so much money making that movie uh, that Bob Iger was like, maybe it's a good idea if we just stop with Touchstone Pictures altogether. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. Um, I'd rather use that money to buy Pixar. <laughs> so yeah, Life Aquatic was like a pretty big bump up in budget for Wes Anderson, right? It was massive. It was, yeah. it was I think, uh, over twice the budget of Royal Tenenbaums. Jeez. Uh, yeah, it was $50 million um, with... Fifty million uh, being spent on on marketing and distribution. It was a wide release. It was, mm-hmm. I mean, it was just a total disaster. And uh, and so he left there, and then he and his um, producing partner Scott Rudin. Yes, that's Scott Rudin. Unfortunately, yeah. They uh, went to Fox Searchlight and said, "Okay, like we want to make this next. We want you guys to make this next Wes Anderson movie." Um, it's going to be about brothers. It's going to be set on a train, and it's going to uh, be a train through India. It's going to be a road road picture, and they were able to produce this for very cheap. This was only seventeen and a half million dollars, which is shocking when you when you look at it. But you know Damn. they're using a lot of extras that aren't actually actors. You know they're just. Mm-hmm. Um, people in the towns that they're in, they're just like paying them, you know, kind of minimal extras, extra fees. And uh, and you only have like the three lead characters and everyone else is a glorified cameo, you know. And so you, there's not a lot to pay for um, with this movie. And uh, and, you know, it's it is definitely after having a movie where Wes was in control of every single thing. In this, he kind of just mm-hmm. put his foot down on like a few things, which was one, he wanted it to be a real train. Um, they ended up getting five, uh, like five train coaches and uh, um, and a uh, an engine for the movie that is on a regular yeah. moving train, and so often. They would have to just not shoot for like a day or a day and a half because the train was going somewhere that they like didn't fit within the movie that they were shooting. Right. And so they would use those days for rehearsal um, so that they would be able to get through the other days faster. Um, but it was a real working train that they had just sort of like taken the back half of and uh, and, and, and were using. Um, for all of the interiors, um, the lighting was complicated because because it was a real train. There was no uh, room for rigs or anything mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. So they actually had to like basically hollow out all of these cabins and 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 everything and rebuild 
all of the sets with lighting and everything incorporated mm. into the walls um, so that they could actually light the scenes yeah. and uh, and everything. And they like built like dollies into the into the ceiling mm. and everything else. So like it, they basically just made like a filmable train um, with like removable walls and everything because it was the only way that they could uh, get this done. And uh, so it was still elaborate, despite only being mm-hmm. seventeen and a half million. It still ended up being a pretty elaborate production. I was going to say, for being a drop in budget, and especially after l- l- learning all of that, in a lot of ways, it's his most impressive playset yet. Yeah, like the Darjeeling mm-hmm. Limited is such a breathing organism. It's almost like a Miyazaki character, where yeah. it's such mm-hmm. so filled with detail and life as these characters are moving up and down it. Yeah, you know? yeah. But so that that that's crazy to hear the hear about <laughs> yeah yeah no that's amazing um yeah it that's the thing it's 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 I, I think the miyazaki comparison is spot on um and i think that uh, you know and but it's the only part of the film where he is in total control anytime they're outside of the train it yeah. does feel like we're going back to that sort of bottle rocket era of west yeah no and like and kind of uh, yeah. To sort of edit a sentence I made earlier, that's kind of what I what I meant in my head when I said the word "dirty" in terms of like disarray and yeah. cl- and clutter. Mm-hmm. And it's it, this is a movie a, lo- a lot of ways about surrender. Like we have a character who has laminated an itinerary for a spiritual journey. Yes, and the the characters in this movie kind of learn to give up control to a, to an extent and kind of let their lives be like yeah. unmoored from the past. Uh well yeah the 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 whole train like uh set thing just being shooting on an actual train like from a filmmaking perspective like logistically that's just a nightmare trains are loud uh they're very compact um I was reading an interview uh with Wes Anderson about the the filmmaking of this uh today and um just little anecdotes about how like the dolly uh guy and jason schwartzman were literally shoulder to shoulder until the second jason schwartzman had to like enter the shot mm-hmm. um just yeah it must have opened up all kinds of challenges yeah yeah, yeah. and been such an adventure to make yeah 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 that was yeah. something he talked about too was uh he roman coppola and um uh, jason schwartzman who wrote the film together they took like a their own journey yeah. through India. And I was they... get, I was going to get to that. Um, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So, so yeah. This was written by um, uh, Roman Coppola and Jason Schwartzman, who's like returning to the Wes Anderson fold from Rushmore. Mm-hmm. I remember when this movie came out, I was so psyched that Jason Schwartzman was back in a Wes Anderson movie. It's mm-hmm. pretty crazy in hindsight that it took that he took this long of a break because they're so melded in my brain with one another yeah yeah he just needed yeah. to grow up i guess i don't know yeah yeah so um you know he uh wanted to make this movie about three brothers with two people that he considered brothers because he felt mm-hmm. that like he needed three distinct personalities sort of like working together to make this thing and uh so they came up with a story together and then um, as chad said once they had the story outlined in terms of like what would be happening in it they then went travel to India together to write the screenplay um, while sort of reenacting the trip that the characters take in the movie uh, yeah. to sort of have real experiences to pull from and add detail from, which is part of what um, the sort of like in joke about 
Jason Schwartzman's character writing these short stories, and they're like, "Wow, that's actually what it was like when it was." <laughs> that's, right, they're, they're not yeah. even asking; they're assuming, like, "Oh, I thought the part where Peter yelled was really funny." And like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. That's fictional. Oh, all the you're characters so good are at remembering details. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so all of that, you know, that's that's you know what they what they did to um, sort of make this feel as natural as possible, um, and it's. I think it makes the movie feel very lived in and and real. Um, and uh, I really, really like the movie now watching it for this. It's just uh, there's a lot more here to appreciate than I think I could have at. Right. What was I? Twenty two when this movie came out. Um, so, you know, I, you know, now I'm like 36 and like, I watched this. I was like, yeah, oof, I feel a lot of this. So <laughs> just a different, different, uh, set of circumstances, I think. Yeah. No, and like the, I, I thought I was, I spent a lot of this movie thinking about perspective, mm-hmm. like, uh, cause the, the movie was heavily inspired by the filmography of Sausage Ray and like mm-hmm. Wes Anderson had never been to India. He had only... Everything he experienced was from watching these classic movies, including right. like a lot of Sausage Ray movies. And I really relate to that because I'm I'm like an ignorant American. I've never left the continent. Everything I know about, you know, America or anything I know about the uh, like uh, other parts of the world are from like a book or a, you know, right. yeah, I don't know. Just li- <laughs> the fact that this movie was written by three affluent people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Traveling through India and is about three affluent people traveling through India mm-hmm. and the movie is, I think, is very self-deprecating. Yes, painting mm-hmm. this very accurate portrait of these three just assholes. Yes, yeah. <laughs> blundering it, their way through India. It, I mean, it, you it, literally have like them going to a foreign country to, you know, process their grief and trauma, and th- you literally have the 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 visual physical representation of these uh, Indian people carrying their baggage around like for them. Uh, you know, just like dumping their baggage on uh, other cultures and other people, like it's, it's, it's quite literally on the text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I mean the, I think the book, or, or, or the movie is a satirical look at the book Eat, Pray, Love. I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. you know, the movie hadn't come out yet at this point. The What's the kind was... of mindset of the, mm-hmm. like India is this magical place where Americans can yeah. go and find themselves and have these right. spiritual epiphanies yeah. right. while having right. like, like, like you said, Chad, while having people like with real lives and struggles, just carrying uh-huh. our luggage around and we're never right. thinking about it. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I love the, the, the sequence where they go to uh, what Owen Wilson describes as like the most spiritual place in the world. And then they end up just like shopping and like buying snakes and pepper spray and right, <laughs> all kinds yeah. of stuff. Like just they're literally consumers in this uh, spiritual place. <laughs> right. Asking people for a power converter. <laughs> right. right. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah. I mean, let's, let's, let's get into the breakdown. Yeah, we start with sure. uh, this really cool uh, kind of metatextual Bill Murray cameo mm. where I, I just got a kick out of like the lead of the last Wes Anderson movie is literally lapped and outran by <laughs> right. the new the new Wes Anderson lead, Adrian Brody, who has never had never been in a Wes Anderson joint yet. Right. So I, I take it we're not talking about um, the uh, Hotel Chevalier. Then. I'm a fan. I like I said, I saw the movie on DVD. So mm-hmm. like I've only seen Hotel Chevalier with like and i think it's a really interesting prelude scott have you seen it mm-hmm. yeah yeah i watched it for this yeah oh cool Very yeah cool. like it's just such an interesting like 
just what it does for Jack in particular mm-hmm. and just how it really reorients the audience mm-hmm. of how like Natalie Portman's character isn't just like Jack's ex-girlfriend. It's a character that we kind of got to know in this cool little short film. Right. right. I mean, apart from the short film, she's in all but all of like five seconds of the the actual yeah. movie. Um, it's just like crazy cameo. Barely a yeah. cameo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like I think it's it's such a cool it's so unlike anything else in his filmography. It's just him channeling mm-hmm. this like Wong Kar Wai sexy Mm -hmm. like sweaty music driven mood piece while still being like a little funny yeah yeah i like it a lot yeah no i i like it a lot too um my only issue with its existence is that (laughs) without it i don't think jack has much of a story in the actual movie um Mm. yeah like his his actions towards like you know the 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 stewardess rita without like or just Mm -hmm. like his kind of yeah, like you said, yeah, it, he seems like kind of just more of like a asshole for no reason. Yeah, there are like there's references to what happens in the short Hotel Chevalier, but I think without actually seeing it, you don't really get the same impact from his uh, his arc in the movie. Right, right, yeah. Um, whereas I think that everyone else's uh, arcs are very clear. Um, the other yeah. two brothers, I think his is uh a little strange it feels a little strange it's really it's almost like the audience and jack share like several inside jokes yeah yeah and it kind of cool kind of like the relationship with the brothers where like when jack plays the song from hotel chevalier on his ipod we are kind of like oh he's playing that song you know yeah but if you didn't see it then it's just like a song just like it is for the brothers Right, right, exactly. But moving back to the, I well, I I want to mention, I do want to mention the fact that Natalie Portman has never mm-hmm. worked with Wes Anderson again. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking weird. about that. Yeah, because he welcomes back so many actors and actresses. Yeah, uh, and they are eager e- eager to work with him. But yeah, uh, but not Natalie Portman. I think that is a something I would like to do in our between episode. I would like to go down the roster of one hit Wes Anderson wonders. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. That's a really good idea. And obviously she's coming fresh off of V for Vendetta because she's got the, the haircut. Yeah. Um, I love the detail that she has the hair, same haircut as their mother. I think that that's... Oh, didn't wow. even like, think of that. I think yeah. that's a really fun detail. Good catch, uh, that, yeah. Yeah, that they don't call attention to. No. Um, but yeah, she's great in this. And they give her, like in that short film, the impressive thing to me is that you get so much of her character in that short film so instantly. Mm-hmm. Like, you know a lot about her. And, you know, when I think about Hotel Chevalier, I really, I can't, there's a, cu- a couple of memorable lines, but I really just remember images yes. and mm-hmm. like looks that Schwartzman and Portman give to each other. And mm-hmm. yeah. it also kind of does really different, like those two have never really gotten to be that kind of like, you know, sexy pot boiler, you know, we're trapped yeah. in a hotel room with each other. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. I it, it's also interesting too because the film, the short film came before the movie. And it was okay, never I was ask about that. Yeah. It, it was originally it not intended to be have anything to do with Darjeeling Limited. Um it was just a short film that Wes Anderson wrote and then as they were writing Darjeeling Limited, he realized like, "Oh, what if your character in the short film is the same character in the movie?" And, like, he's dealing with similar things. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jason Schwartzman really liked the idea. And he really liked... Honestly, I yeah. think of all of his movies, this is the movie that I could see him revisiting the characters, like, down the road. Um, no, for sure. 
like coming back to them, like doing a film about like Natalie Portman's character for just for an example, you know, like just doing a a movie where she's the lead in the in the in the film, you know, but uh, yeah, it it feels it really feels like something that was ahead of its time because mm -hmm. it had this awkward kind of truncated theatrical release because it was a short and this was really back in 2007. It was before like YouTube was really as ubiquitous as it was. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it would have been much easier to like, yeah, create like you like the idea of like this being a universe. Right. Yeah. It was like, of like, oh yeah, what is, or like the tiger? I don't know. Like yeah. what different, what's going on <laughs> in different parts of this world that we're, he's making. Yeah. Well, it's funny you bring up the tiger because I also think that what's interesting about Wes Anderson's films is like, he always has a pastiche. He has a, um, a thing where like, Oh, the movie within the movie kind of thing, right. With Rushmore, it's like, you're watching a play of, mm-hmm. of Max Fisher's life rather than actually watching the real life, um, of Max Fisher. And, mm-hmm. and that's with the, the curtain draw like you know opening and closing at the beginning and end of the film yeah. um and then royal tenenbaums is a novel and uh and then you have uh, life aquatic which is like a series of uh of documentaries right um and and here uh you de- and, and down the line you also have a lot of those those kinds of uh storytelling p- pastiches but here mm-hmm. there is you can make the argument that the that this uh, this film is one of um, Jack's, you know, short stories, or maybe it's his yeah. it's his novel that he writes, right? Right. But what I what I what I wanted to bring up was that, like, despite those pastiches, all of his movies tend to be very like straight and down the middle in terms of like everything that you're seeing that's happening is happening, right? It doesn't feature mm-hmm. a lot of symbolism. There's not a lot of metaphor, right? It's very just like. People stating things out loud, how they're feeling, you know, it's Mm -hmm. a lot of that. But talking about the tiger and about the opening of the film with Bill Murray, I think it's I think it's worth pointing out um, the theory that Bill Murray doesn't actually exist in the film and that Bill Murray is their (laughs) father. Um, and oh, that wow. that Bill Murray is is not Bill Murray in that opening sequence. He is uh, Mr. Whitman. Yeah, yeah. He, right. Um, J- Jim Whitman, the father. The father. Yeah, right. Yeah. But no, no. But that he is actually Peter, and it's Peter sort of carrying oh. the baggage of his father. And so everything that we're seeing happening to Bill Murray, it's actually happening to Peter. And like that moment where he outruns him is sort of like this metaphor for him like trying to like sort of run away from dealing with his feelings about his father um, and about losing his father. And the reason that I brought up the tiger is because the tiger is supposedly in a lot of like, especially Indian fiction, tigers represent death. And Mm. so the fact that we get this animatronic tiger in the same shot as the final shot with Bill Murray's character again, got it. Yeah, it's it's meant to be this this or suggested that it is a metaphor for the death of their father and and all of this baggage Mm. that they've left behind, Um, literally leave behind uh, their figurative baggage. Yeah, Um, one of my favorite images in the movie is them shedding their baggage. Yeah, oh, it's great. I love that. Um, It's the it's really the shot. That final shot is the shot that like not final shot, but like that final Mm -hmm. little sequence was the thing that was just like, oh, okay, this movie rules. Um, yeah, was that yeah. Th- that bit? But uh, yeah, that that kink soundtrack playing in the background. Totally, and... totally. But yeah, Bill Murray, Bill Murray, 
might be their father. That is a yeah. an, an interpretation yeah. that is I've, out there. Uh, yeah, I've I've sort of interpreted Bill Murray as reminding Peter of his father, like in that scene when he like passes him because he gives mm-hmm. him that look and then he like watches him in the distance. But mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, the 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 added element of like it, it is this like spiritual <laughs> experience that he's having is uh is interesting. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so Peter does get on the train where he meets mm. uh, his brothers, Jack, played by Jason Schwartzman, and Francis, played by Owen Wilson. Uh, this is just something I could totally just be pulling this out of my brain. But there is also something I got a kick out of Owen Wilson being like, I'm the oldest. He's the oldest brother. And he's also mm-hmm. been in the company the longest. Mm-hmm. The, the Wes Anderson playground. Oh, yeah. That's true. <laughs> All the way from movie that's, one. That's uh, very true. Speaking of returning champs, we meet uh, the... Head steward, played by a guy we didn't mention last week, Waris uh, Alawalia, who was the cameraman in Life Aquatic, and is like such to me an iconic part of like the Wes Anderson group. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, I totally agree. Um, I want to talk about the fact that um, the way that they sort of constructed these three characters to feel like brothers, despite the fact that they don't really look anything like each other. <laughs> I mean, it, it it's. Mm-hmm. They don't look like brothers, but the way that they make the audience feel like they're brothers um, is they all they dress them in in just variations of the same outfit. So they mm-hmm. kind of have a Huey, Dewey and Louie quality to them. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and uh, and then and then uh, giving them all um, sort of like tokens that they are like carrying around with them, like these like co- sort of comfort tokens, you know, like you mm-hmm. have um, Peter with like his dad's things and you right. Have, well, it's a major yeah. point of contention between the characters of that. Peter has collected the most tokens of dads. Right. Yeah. And right. like they, they take offense, especially Francis as the oldest that like, takes offense to that. These, right. these totems mean something, especially the mm-hmm. baggage that they're hauling around the whole movie. I love the design of the brothers. I love the gray jackets with the shirts and you can kind of mm-hmm. track who's close. Cause they also like total siblings. They borrow each other's shit and will wear each mm-hmm. other's shit without telling the other one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. It's, they have a very iconic look, you know, it, it, it's very, again, it's that Huey, Dewey and Louie quality of like one's short and has a mustache. One is tall right. and clean shaven and one is blonde and wearing bandages. All over you, his you, yeah. To, to, to on, extend the metaphor, you could argue mm-hmm. that like, uh, before the accident, Owen Wilson was the Dewey, like the handsome one. Maybe. Yeah, but <laughs> sure. Now the bandages have become his like like iconic mm-hmm. piece. If you were right. in a costume, because yeah. as we all know, Dewey is the most handsome of the, <laughs> right, the Dubs, yes. brothers, the Doofer. Yeah. <laughs> um, but on top of just like iconography, their their looks and what like distinguishes them also plays into how each of them are processing their dad's death. Mm-hmm. Like Owen Wilson, you just have this like v- visual representation of his uh, suicide attempt. Um, yeah, that we learn about later down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Adrian Brody is like literally hurting himself, giving himself headaches by wearing these prescription sunglasses that uh, that aren't his prescription. There's dad's prescription, and uh, uh, but Jack rather, Jack. he's like barefoot and like kind of like. Hippie, he's kind of the guy who like ran off to. Yeah, he's down in cough uh, syrup the whole time. Yeah, he's, he's still not over Natalie Portman, but he really wants to be. Yeah, yeah. It's honestly, I'd forgotten about this, and then doing my research, I I suddenly remembered, and it really, the arc of Francis in this movie is like 
really hard to deal with knowing that two months before the movie was released. So after filming it, Owen Wilson attempted suicide. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's something that I'd forgotten honestly about Owen Wilson because I just missed him for Mm -hmm. so long because he just hadn't been in things for so long other than like sequels that I had forgotten the reason why, you know? Yeah. I mean, it it was such a big deal when it happened because he was such like a, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, frat comedy here, you know, Oh, Owen Wilson's on the, on the movie guys. And, but you're right. We're so lucky that we've had him for so much longer that we've, we've gotten Mm -hmm. to forget about it. Right. I thought a lot about him as an actor in this movie and there's mm-hmm. that kind of unforced effortless quality to him where there's always just something really vulnerable about him and how that's used to such mm-hmm. devastating effect in this movie. Yeah. And, and yeah. Yeah. The prophetic yeah. stuff. It's uh, yeah. It's so it, it, it does. It makes it a rough watch. Um, I, I thought originally when I first heard about like the reference to um, his attempted suicide while doing my research for this, my initial thought was like, oh, is this he, he and Wes Anderson sort of like reckoning with the fact that he did this? <laughs> but then to learn that, no, he shot this movie and then attempted it before the movie Man. was even released is like. I actually didn't put that together about the timeline of, of events. That's yeah. Man. so it's so heartbreaking and, and strange the, sure like there was something uh mm-hmm. something wes anderson said in that interview that i read this morning uh, about this movie about how every movie is also a documentary of these actors at the mm-hmm. time of uh, uh of shooting it yeah and i wonder if he was like specifically re- referring to that he wasn't in the interview necessarily um but right i wonder if that was on his mind i Man. don't know I don't know. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it is definitely heartbreaking. Yeah, it is, I will say it'll be a little hard to like. I I think like step through this movie like we normally do because the the plot is not sure. really a plot. Right. <laughs> sure. Right. No. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's you not know, like a Dark Phoenix or right? something yeah. where you can like. Yeah. I know. And it was so. Go I, uh, the same way. to go back to Satyajit Ray. I had never seen a Satyajit Ray movie. But I was, I thought, oh, revisiting this movie, what a great opportunity. So I actually got to watch my first Sacha de Ray movie. Uh, oh, I chose, great. Yeah, I chose the movie Charlulata uh, because the theme of Charlulata is used several times in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, more mm. specifically, it's usually the theme that plays uh, during Rita and Jack's courtship of one another. Gotcha. Um, it's this like reoccurring theme. And uh, there's this great New York Times reviewed Charlulata, which is like this drama about this uh, kind of wealthy wife that's leading this very lonely life and her husband is busy running a newspaper and she wants to write but is feels pressure to and the New York Times uh, described the movie as a majestic snail like all of Sasha G. Ray movies they have this beautiful unrushed pace of no you're just going to watch this character be on a swing and yeah. and you kind of look back on the movie and you're like I don't know how to describe what happened in like a tight mm-hmm couple of sentences and i think uh anderson borrows from that that kind of vibe yeah in a really interesting way yeah this is kind of an new this movie i always remember this movie being over two hours and it's 90 minutes right right yeah but not in a bad way well the the thing about it is it's it's like 90 minutes of like the middle of a story right like Mm -hmm. we don't see the the father die right off the bat we don't really know why they're on this trip until about 20 minutes in when we start to know these characters Mm -hmm. Uh, you just see like oh these brothers are like on a trip 
at the very beginning. And then when it ends, there's not some like great epiphany. They're just sort of still on their journey. You know, it's like, right. it's sort of like about the middle of a story. Yeah. Um, and I think in that's a really kind effective of, way. And I think that might, may also lend itself to why this feels more realistic than his other movies, because mm-hmm. it doesn't have that satisfying beginning, middle and end of like, we get these snapshots of these characters. Yeah. When you talk about like uh, road movies, right? I mean, I, mm-hmm. I would say that it's probably um, a a uh, a trope to to do this sort of like real journey, emotional journey thing. But I mean, that is what this movie is ultimately. It's mm-hmm. like it is. It doesn't have those those satisfying beginning, middle, and end like concepts that you're used to in film. But right. I think if you track the movie emotionally, it does right. Um, and, and so I, that's what I, I do like about, about, um, the structure of this movie and the sort of meandering quality to it. It's funny though, that you bring up like the, the the swinging on, uh, or the, you know, like the, the, we're just going to watch this person swing on a swing set. What I've taken to doing during this mini series is like when I'm reading the texts that I'm reading to like find the stories about the making of these films, Mm -hmm. all of almost all of the criterion, uh, uh, Blu-rays for these movies come with a documentary, um, about the making Mm. of the film. But the documentaries are the style of documentary that are just like all B-roll footage, right? There's not like a narrative to them. It's like people aren't talking. You're just kind of watching them make the movie. And so I put that on and then I keep that on in the background while I'm like reading my texts and things like that. So, you know, so it's like a really cool vibe. But (laughs) um, the reason I bring that up is because... There are a lot of slow motion shots in this movie, right? Mm-hmm. And um, specifically, a lot of shots of them like walking across the tracking like, dolly- shot. Yeah, tracking shot, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Of them just sort of like walking from point A to point B. And um, you get to see them shoot those scenes in here. And it is the most like jarring thing to watch them <laughs> film those scenes at full speed where they're right. actually kind of like fast walking. Like, because. Mm-hmm. Because Owen Wilson and Adrian Brody are so much taller than Jason Schwartzman, Jason Schwartzman has littler <laughs> legs. He has to basically like fast. He's like fast walking with them to keep up. Oh, that's incredible! And, and it's just so in- interesting watching it happen, and right. then knowing like that five second shot that they just shot is going to be like 30, 40 seconds in the actual movie. Mm-hmm. It's uh, going to slow it down. It's like hearing the chipmunks in their normal voice tone. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like, absolutely. Yeah. It was, it was a really interesting thing, but yeah, this movie is a lot of vibes. Yeah. I'm just in- yeah. picturing the introduction to Peter and like him running to get on the train. Like, yeah, that was probably like a very quick yeah. uh, shot. Just like, Oh, jump up I... but in the movie. It <laughs> right. really takes your time through it. Yeah. I love this that first scene with them in the dining car together and just you just mm. nail Anderson nails all their picadillos in like one scene of like don't order for me like mm-hmm. the way that like Francis kind of cu- curates everything and controls everything yeah. Jack just it's wants the, to be left alone yeah it's the first time we get the um uh, all the characters are fictional line but not the last uh, right. as uh, Peter's reading Jack's short story Mm-hmm. Yeah. I find Francis a really interesting character. Uh, I think more so than the other two brothers. And I like the other two brothers a lot, but I, there's mm-hmm. Francis is fascinating to me because he makes this comment about how, like, did I raise you guys right? Or did I, like, he's like, did I raise <laughs> right. you guys or did I basically. He just, 
you know, he totally changes the subject and just is like, "Did I raise us?" Like when no one is talking about <laughs> right that at all, right? Yeah. And it, and but it's an interesting thing because you know he is stepping into this sort of patriarchal role mm. here, where he's like ordering for them and like mm. creating an itinerary, which we learn later that he gets from his mother. Yeah, um, totally mirrored behavior. From yeah. Her. But it, it it's it's interesting because it's like, well, this is a guy who attempted suicide by running his motorcycle fifty miles per hour into a rock, into like the side of a, a mountain yeah. or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever it was. Um mm-hmm. and but then he also feels like he needs to like fill this void left by their father, um, in mm-hmm. the lives of his two brothers, which is and and it's interesting because it's like did he come to this conclusion after surviving his suicide attempt that like, oh, that's what I need to fix me is that I need to I need to do something that like fills this void for them. I need to have a purpose and maybe that's my purpose. Or as he suggested, right. you know, suggests in this dining car, that was always his role. And now he's returning to it to sort of find comfort in it. You know, speaking personally, there's something about Francis I find deeply relatable in that he can at once be like very selfish and self-centered. And even in the way that he like he see like the guilt he feels of I need to fill this patriarchal role. Yeah, I I need to be their mother and father. And so when he reaches Mm -hmm. out to them about that, they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? No. Yeah. We're all grown (laughs) men. That's how you see yourself. Like, I feel that way, too, of like, yeah, we're like, oh, they have their own. My siblings have their own lives. They're not thinking about, like, where's Nick 24-7. They're, like, off in their own shit. Right. Right. Um, It's really interesting. I want to bring up. Uh, just because I think she's worth certainly worth bringing up, uh, Rita played by Amara Karan, mm, who yeah. is uh, the only way that I can describe her accurately is captivating. Um, and like Nick, you and I know her from the God Complex, the episode of the Doctor of Doctor Who. Absolutely. Um, she is from that. Oh, I also okay. know her from a movie called uh, The Fear of Everything. She has but- a depressingly sparse filmography. It is, and that's mm-hmm. that's what I wanted to talk about because I'm like, Please. how does anyone watch this movie and not be like, holy shit, put her in everything? Mm. Racism. Like, oh, yeah. you think that's she, all it is? A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think. Well, not like, like you know, not like the like the movie Hollywood racism, but the ingrained. We've all kind of we're all filthy with it. Of like, I don't know. For some reason, I just don't see her like being in a coffee shop yeah. bumping into a cute guy. But I can see right. Natalie Portman. Right, like, like that. Yeah, kind she's of not the lead. I don't see her as a lead. Yeah, that kind right. of. Right. The, how how oh, easy right. it is to talk your way out of casting people who are brown. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, it. I mean, it was just watching her in this movie, and the fact that like this didn't turn her into a star. It is. is it is a movie star quality oh. performance of like she kind of command, like you said, commands the screen every time. You can get mm-hmm. in, like a very little dialogue, but like you kind of, she feels like yeah. a real character. Very yeah. little screen time, but you do feel like you know her and like who she is to jack who jack is to her like you kind of just get that dynamic in very few words the uh the steward right each other (laughs) yeah yeah the the head steward yeah um chief steward yeah they don't even Um, say that that's who they're dating but like you can just you you know just by watching it that's what's going on right yeah all she says is i have a boyfriend right (laughs) and and she also says what, what i also love about her character is that she has an arc that is sort of unseen, mm-hmm. but is mm-hmm. there. 
um, which is like she says, I have to get off this fucking train. And (laughs) when they come back to the train at the end, she isn't the steward anymore. Like there's another woman in that role. And so now like you, you're like, you can surmise that like, okay, she broke up with him. She did successfully break up with him and has gotten off the train. She's Mm -hmm. no longer working for the train. And that, that made me happy Uh, that Uh, he actually did not ever see her again. One of my, yeah. One of my favorite moments is, Oh, did you get pepper sprayed too? Like, no, I'm crying. (laughs) No, I'm crying. Yes. (laughs) That's, like, oh, I love those. One of the best things. Yeah. Another another favorite line of mine is like 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 you were saying, Chad. Like when they get off and they're at this yeah. crowded marketplace and they're haggling and, and Peter's asking like shoe sizes, but like when they're at the temple and like Peter just wants to be alone and he's like, I'm just gonna go pray at another thing. Like, <laughs> yeah, they're yeah, not taking yeah. any of this seriously. They're just kind of like breezing through it, just trying to. Get or they're it over doing it. it the best way they can, at the very least. Like they're. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm going to go pray at this other thing is just not something you say when you're like genuinely having a, oh, a spiritual, emotional journey. When they leave the temple and then Owen Wilson's like, wow, right? You know, like they've just like left a museum or just done mm-hmm. something really like good for themselves. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. And then they get a shoe shine, right? They do. But and then, then they he, get their shoes stolen. He gets his $3,000 loafer stolen. Yeah. Just one. Yeah. Just one. <laughs> right. Yeah, Francis that has one very... loafer is worth three thousand dollars. His belt is apparently worth six thousand dollars. He's yeah. uh, just wearing. His we wealth, don't ever literally. find out what he does for a living. That he's so rich, right? I, I took it as like they're just born into wealth. That their dad oh. must have been wildly wealthy. But uh, but I don't know. I don't know what they do. That was kind yeah. of my assumption too. What any of them do, other than Jack's a writer. They're yeah. all only in their thirties, and yet they've already achieved. Like this relative life of leisure where right. you don't hear about any of them having to right. get back to the office or right. like do stuff for work. Right. Yeah, that's true. They can Jack- just like up and leave on a spiritual journey, mm-hmm. which like, I can't do. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> Jack is a published author. We never learn if he's a successful one. So like there's a chance that maybe like his first mm-hmm. book was a big success and I was like coasting off of that. Yeah, right. But I mean, like I, we know yeah. in Hotel Chevalier, he's spending a lot of money at that hotel room for like right, over a right. month, just night after night. So but even just, well, uh, but. but even just talking this out, very, very different to the Tannenbaums, where you know their whole lives, like mm-hmm. to yep. the to 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 the year with like Margot Tannenbaum and Richie, yeah. their whole biography is mapped out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, we get that intro in that movie of like, here's this person, here's this person, and here's their deal. But we just sort of are dropped into the middle of this one. Yeah, there's so much mystery yeah. to these characters. Um, mm-hmm. But I also like, again, you know, we've brought it up multiple times, the sort of ongoing theme in in Wes Anderson's films of fake it till you make it. And this is about uh, Mm. faking being brothers until you become actual brothers, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, faking (laughs) a spiritual journey until you're actually having a spiritual journey. Yeah, that too. Absolutely. You've got the two uh, the two feather ceremonies at the parts of the movie that sort of like chart that journey for them, like. Uh, Francis trying to like be a stickler for the rules on how they're going to be, how they're going to do the feather ceremony and how yeah. the, and the brothers don't care and they don't really listen or they don't understand the rules. And then they're just like more free and they're together at the end of it. They're just sort of improv it. And then they, mm. they blow on the feather together. And that feels uh, like such a beautiful metaphor for like family itself where, mm-hmm. you know, you, we can become tethered to these ancient, to these ceremonies that feel very distant to us or form, mm-hmm. you know, and, 
But then when we surrender that and we just kind of improv a family and just let everyone kind of be themselves free of those yeah. expectations, they actually kind of like, that's when they're at their closest at the end. Yeah. yeah. And whatever yoga moves or whatever that Peter is doing in that final feather ceremony, it just, I love it. It's just cinema. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's silly. It's wonderful. Adrian Brody really just, just really slips into this company in a mm-hmm. really organic way. And it's a, it's a, it's not a, it's a, I was going to say, it's no wondering that he sticks around. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the little arc of the snake where Peter's like outraged that the head steward killed the snake. And then at the very end, you learn that he adopted him as a pet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also just love the idea that when he's out in the marketplace, he thinks I'm going to buy the poisonous snake. Like I don't, I don't really oh, yeah. know what he's thinking other than yeah, he's like, like well, pretty, the, uh... Uh, pretty self-destructive in general. Sure. He's like, yeah, just like a... this poisonous snake too. <laughs> Just like a like an asshole rich American of yeah. like yeah. not not thinking ahead of mm-hmm. like oh no I'm just gonna bring this poison snake it's fine and then they like, get offended when the steward like says that he killed it Are you of sure all the things getting the head snake steward... was a good idea it has a skull and crossbones on the box right. <laughs> and of all the things for the head steward to grab as a tool to capture the snake he picks up a spatula out of the kitchen and then he hit, runs in to to scoop mm-hmm. him yeah. up. That moment is so funny to me that, like, I kind of wonder, is he going to grab tongs? Is he going to grab, like, what is he going to grab? And he picks up a spatula to <laughs> to scoop yeah. him up. Makes sense. You scoop it. I guess you know. so. He's not yeah. trying to, like, hack it. Well, I also, well, yeah, think, yeah. I also think he was probably using it. My What I pictured anyway was that. Because <laughs> you don't see it. He, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was that he uses it to, to press down on its head so yeah. that he can pick it up. Oh, that's smart. Yeah, that makes, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um. So they they get kicked off the train, which leads to their like sojourn in the desert. And then uh, there's this part of the movie that's like embedded in my brain uh, where they're like walking, they're schlepping through the woods. And uh, Owen Wilson's like, look at these assholes. And it's these three brothers that are struggling on a raft. And then it flips over, which is just like that little snapshot of like, look at these assholes. Just like just saying the wrong thing Mm. at the, you know, not knowing what's about to happen. Just again, feels very real life. Mm-hmm. It's one of those film moments where it just like tonally turns itself over in like a matter of seconds in a way that the first time watching I was not prepared for. And I was like, I was totally taken aback. Like, what is happening? What's going on? I thought this was a lighthearted little moment. And then and then it's like the most devastating part mm-hmm. of the, the movie. Yeah. Another Anderson motif, like the sudden flash of, of violence. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. God, Irfan Khan is so good in this and he's. <laughs> He's only in like a few shots and it's just like, it's kind of a stunning, mm-hmm. heartbreaking performance. It, it's a pretty, you know, it's a great, he's far and away the biggest like in name of Indian cinema to appear in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like, like just such weight. And the movie really stops for this funeral, this, mm-hmm. this ceremony. And it's yeah. kind of the heart of the movie. It's in the sequence that we finally flash back to the day of their father's funeral, too, because um, mm-hmm. I think that this moment for them after year a year of repressing thinking about their father's funeral in that day, uh, just another funeral, another death brings all these things to surface. And then we're able to to sort of go on that journey with them. Yeah. And I that, think that I oh, think please. that the, the moment is so like. It, it it's connected so he- it, it's connected to all of their arcs, but it's connected so much more heavily to Peter's arc of this mm. impending fatherhood 
right mm-hmm. that he is yeah. dealing with um and the and and you know being like i had him and i slipped and i lost him and now he's dead and mm-hmm. like what does yeah. that mean to me as a father like you know, like right, I, I'm yeah. going to be responsible for another life, and I was just responsible mm-hmm. for this kid's life. We all agreed. You take that one, I take this one. You take, and mm-hmm. I lost mine. Like, what does yeah. that mean? And like, I, it, it is really. I think Adrian Brody does like some really, really great acting yeah, with that. There's a little moment in the village after this has happened, and they bring the the boy's body back, where uh, someone has. Uh, Peter hold their baby it's like a little baby and mm-hmm. just Brody's performance in that scene is like he feels like he doesn't even deserve to hold this baby like he isn't sure what to do and he's like he doesn't want to hold this because he doesn't feel like he can right um, yeah like he's not ready to be a father he just let down this other boy all these things at once but it's unspoken it's just this performance it's beautiful yeah, yeah. And there's this moment uh, when they're about to get on the bus where he like tells this little boy, he doesn't even understand what he's saying of like, hey, just let them know yeah. that like, I, you know, I, if, if this hadn't have happened, you know, trying to mm-hmm. reason with himself of like, I, I why he failed. Him, yeah. yeah. I had him until the very end. He keeps saying. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's also like it's this weird thing where it's like, yeah, you could make the argument that he's trying to justify like. Like, mm. I was almost there. And it's like, okay, but the kid still died. So, like, mm, are yeah. you trying to justify that, like, you almost did it? Or are you trying to make yourself feel worse? Like, mm. are you are you trying mm. to say that, like, I, I'm such a piece of shit that I mm. almost had it and I still fucked it up, you know? I'm, I'm, I don't know. Like, I, I'm kind of with Nick where I, I think he doesn't know what he's saying. I think his yeah. brain is just moving. And it's right, just like right. he doesn't yeah. know how to process it yeah the uh the funeral flashback is just like the saddest funniest it it, it reminds me of like the heist from bottle rocket where it's just such a shit show from start to finish (laughs) yes (laughs) yeah i mean it's yeah (laughs) it's devastating because all three of these brothers are are clearly going through it but that moment when they roll the car backwards back into the (laughs) garage just makes me crack up every single time it's like this isn't working let's just scrap it it's also working it's it's weirdly the moment where Francis the, feels the most like the oldest. Like there's this part where he's on the phone yeah. with with Adrian Brody's wife, and he just looks through the window and just sees Owen like Jason Schwartzman taking his shirt off, and like <laughs> yes. I don't remember I don't remember what Adrian Brody's like. Oh, we're and on his face. He's like, we're not getting to the funeral. Like this isn't going to happen. Yeah. yeah. And I, he also shelters them from the knowledge that their mother is not coming to the funeral because right. Alice tells him. Uh, she's not going to make it. She never got on the plane. And then um, uh, Jack asks him, is the la- last moment of the flashback? And he tells him, like, uh, like we'll see. Or he gives him, like, a non-answer. He's just like, mm-hmm. I don't need to add this on top of what they're already going through. I think this um, is probably, like, one of the most human things about Wes Anderson as a filmmaker is allowing his characters to have these moments of, like, again, like, that fake it till you make it quality in like mm. these small moments of like, nope, we're not going to make it. I just, I try, <laughs> I try to make this work. Right. And, and right. you know, we're like, just like actions without thinking and then getting to the, your, your thoughts finally catching up with your actions and then being like, what am I doing? What are we doing? We got to, we, okay, let's take it back. Roll it back. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just like kind of like making sure that like they're understood. Mm hmm. 
just wanting yeah. to be like, look, this is why I'm the way that I am. Or like, yeah. you know, like uh, when, when, when you take your tooth out, you should say, please forgive this. <laughs> <laughs> when he does, it's so yeah. funny. <laughs> please forgive this. <laughs> God. Oh, uh, I love when they're back at the airport and they're just letting Francis direct them. And they're like, and then we'll have a, a quiet small moment over there in that corner. Where we'll pray mm -hmm. and reflect on the adventure that we had break. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk about the scene in the bathroom where Owen Wilson takes off his bandages. Mm -hmm. It is, it is after the mom stuff. And I do want to talk about the mom stuff, but like mm -hmm. this, the scene where he takes that stuff off. Okay. So two, two, two parts of this mm -hmm. one from a practical standpoint, you know, we see these scenes in in movies where people are looking at themselves in the mirror and like we're the mirror. And I just feel like I need to point out and remind everybody that there is no mirror, that right. <laughs> that these actors are acting at nothing. Um, yeah. And so They're when he's cutting his bandages <laughs> off, he's not looking at his reflection. There is no reflection to be looked at. He's wow, doing yeah. that blind. Um, which yeah. I find very impressive uh, and also <laughs> dangerous. For sure. Good job, um, Owen Wilson. That was a yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, I I I love his brothers watching him do this because like obviously they're mm -hmm. curious about like how bad yeah. this is, right? And they're horrified to discover just how bad it is. Um, mm -hmm. And this is after learning that it was uh, a suicide attempt, um, but. The line that Owen Wilson says of like, I guess I have more healing to do is yeah. like that, like hit me like really, mm -hmm. really hard. Yeah, You know, yeah. if you're going to point to one moment in the movie and say like, this is what the movie's about. Like this is, this is the theme stated. Uh, it's yeah. this, it's yeah. uh, all three of these brothers still have some healing to do. And this is just like the beginning of them correcting their course, so to speak. Yeah. Um, uh, they, they, don't have this like magical epiphany where like oh i just should have been doing this all along and now everything's right. happy like they're still the same people they still end the movie saying like let's have a drink and a cigarette like let's cope in the ways that we do but like uh but their outlook is is shifting in, in, a, in a positive direction right. um but yeah there's all you kinds know of things like uh he's still got healing to do from his uh um accident uh peter's got like a baby on the way Right. Uh, Jack is like, you know, he's still in the middle of writing his story, but it's not finished yet. It's like all these works in progress um, yeah. that uh, sort of reflect uh, how they how they, their grief is also a work in progress. Right. Yeah. You know, something like like yeah, during during that mirror scene, like, I don't know, there's something really the brilliance of Owen Wilson as an actor to me is I couldn't on the surface. There doesn't seem to be anything different between like uh, Eli Cash or Diggum or Francis because like he's not doing like a really different voice or he's not wearing this crazy prosthetic or costume and yet all of his characters in these movies so far and there have been four feel like such complete whole unique humans yeah and that sort of unforced quality to where you don't he just mm -hmm. in the moment feels like a human reacting to what's happening to him which is kind of the secret of acting yeah and I yeah I think I've he's a he's a very underrated actor I think like this has been a big year for him with like Loki and whatnot but yeah. like and that's awesome because it's mm -hmm. it's hopefully led to a reevaluation of this actor that I think we did a lot of writing off in the two thousands yeah yeah I mean, absolutely people people like uh, write him off as just the the wow guy sure. <laughs> it's just so unfair to like 
like this performance. I don't think of him as like the wow guy. It's kind He's... of a, it, it's something that it's a weird double edged sword of success where an actor becomes so iconic, like Christopher Walken or mm, Nicolas sure. Cage or De Niro, where they risk becoming a caricature. But yeah. then beneath <laughs> that is like, you know, they have to be good in the first place to get that. Right. Totally. And it's like, and then it's like every time they put, they put out a performance that is impressive Everyone is like, wow, Christopher Walken in, in Catch Me If You Can. He's amazing. <laughs> right. And it's like, he was yeah, always no amazing. Kidding. <laughs> and then, yeah, he was always amazing. He's Christopher fucking Walken. And then, right. like, literally not a year later, everyone forgets again. And and they're sure. just like, oh, yeah, Christopher Walken. Yeah, he talks like, the, you know. He's, Nicholas he's, Cage. He's yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, who knew? Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, okay, so let's let's talk about their mom. Sure. The nun. Yeah. Angelica um, Houston. Yeah. Wes Anderson. The hat uh, trick. Wes Anderson let Angelica Houston know that she was going to play a role in this movie by sending her uh, figurines of nuns for like <laughs> over fun. over like over the course of like uh, like a few weeks until she was finally like, OK, what's with all the nuns? What's going on? <laughs> oh, did you not put that together? You're in a movie. We're filming in India. Yeah. <laughs> In, in lieu of a script, I'm just sending you statues of nuns, and uh, you'll <laughs> yeah. <it out. laughs> um, but uh, yeah, this this is the very rare instance of a bad mom in a Wes Anderson movie. Um, it's a it's a cool like mm-hmm. reversal of expectations of like yeah you've, we've gotten used to Angelica Houston being a comforting presence in his films, mm-hmm. and she she disappoints the brothers and us the viewers very abruptly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But what's interesting is she disappoints them in the same way that they disappoint themselves, which is <laughs> she runs away from her from her problems, from right. you know, like dealing with any of this emotional baggage. She just runs from it, and right. that's exactly what they've been mm-hmm. doing for the past year, um, and are trying <laughs> mm-hmm. to you know come to some sort of. Uh, uh, understanding of themselves and each other in this moment, and she's not yeah. letting them do it, so they can only have and that with each other. Totally, and it's out of this betrayal. It's they literally get up from their breakfast, they don't eat, and they go do the feather ceremony. Right, mm-hmm. uh, and the way that they do that this time is together, whereas before they went off in their separate ways. Um, but I feel like this was kind of what they needed to learn was. We got to be in it together. We can't just run off on our own and run right, away from yeah. everything. There's yeah. that part earlier where Jason Schwartzman is like, "Can I get my own car to myself?" And Rita's like, "No, we're we're booked. Right. Like, you have to be with your right, right." <laughs> and kind of going back to like how this feels more a little bit more realistic and less pastiche than the other Wes Anderson mm-hmm. movies is, with the exception of Life Aquatic. But even that has kind of like a a, a cute little bow ending where and they all live happily yeah. ever after and right. like I've, I've fucking loved every movie that we reviewed so far i think they earned those endings each time but mm-hmm. it's it's really cool that there's is this part of the filmography that yes yeah, sometimes your parents aren't who you need them to be and it's not fair yeah. and it's not your fault but but you still get this opportunity to like make your own life and build from that and it's a, a messiness that i really admire in this movie yeah, I mean, I just, I, I really love it. I love how short it is. I love how to the point it is, while also having this feeling of, of like kind of meandering. You know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it it is able to have a very dense emotional journey over the course of ninety minutes, where 
describing a beat for beat of what happens in this movie, I feel would be difficult and and relatively pointless. <laughs> you yeah, know, it, it's right. so it's so full of great moments that we've been like remembering, almost yeah. like it, almost like a trip out of order. Right. Right. Um, yeah. But right. yeah, we, yeah, we, we I mean, Chad, Chad nailed it like earlier in the episode. But it's it's like a pitch perfect ending of the of them shedding their their father's baggage and oh. finding surprise and joy in that and the levity of that. It's mm-hmm. it's cool. It might be like his most affecting ending yet because it feels almost kind of a surprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but also uh, layered on top of it, they're leaving their baggage behind, and there's that shot of all these like Indian men <laughs> trying to help them, and it's like, oh, all fucking right, your thanks. problem now. <laughs> like we yeah. came through, we made a mess, and like you you pick yeah. up the mess now. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like privileged. Like, yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Like the the movie never gets to never get lets the guys off the hook. Like, there's that great moment where um they're in the airport and Adrian Brody. They're talking about Olin Wilson's assistant that has alopecia, and he's like, "Oh yeah, or maybe yeah. he can get a medicine for his weird albino thing or whatever the fuck." Like he's so <laughs> he's still such a dick about even trying to be nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah Brendan uh, is not really like a person in their eyes. Uh, yeah, until. Right. Oh, Brent, Brendan also is fascinating to me because he is dressed the most realistically of any Wes Anderson character where like that is what most American tourists look like. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like they don't look like uh, Peter, Jack or Francis wearing right. suits and they're wearing, wearing like, like barefoot a, a, or... <laughs> a, a, he's sweaty. He's wearing cargo shorts and a collared shirt and a baseball cap. Mm hmm. And he's right. not allowed to be seen or heard. <laughs> I <laughs> yeah. love that Francis just shuts him into another room just like. You will leave the laminated itineraries <laughs> under our door every morning. Yeah, it was a really great watch. I'm glad that um, I had this opportunity to revisit it because uh, it's so much better than I remember it being. And I think it's just because you, it's it's a hard movie to connect with when you're young. I think mm-hmm. um, because yeah. you need more life experience to like really grasp what the movie is doing. And I also think that it's not a movie that. Uh, I, I think it requires multiple viewings, you know, despite being 90 minutes, I think it is really dense with mm. metaphor, which is also something that you're not used to seeing in a Wes Anderson movie. So you go into this with your Wes Anderson goggles on and you're like, OK, I'm going to have a mm. fun time with a Wes Anderson movie. Um, and this is not that. I mean, you know, it is a fun watch. and yeah. These characters are fun to watch and and everything. But it isn't it doesn't have those comfort things that Wes mm. Anderson movies have. Um, it, it really does feel like a, it feels like Wes Anderson sort of back to basics. And I think that what he learns here, um, I think he then flips around and kind of does the opposite with fan, fantastic, uh, fantastic Mr. Fox, where he's in control of yeah. literally everything. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh-huh. Um, and then I think that he merges those two things with the movie we're going to talk about next week, Moonrise Kingdom. And then, mm. you know, further down the line with Budapest Hotel. Um, and I think that it's we're really starting to like kind of, I think, figure him out as a filmmaker during this miniseries about like how this cinematic journey for him <laughs> has has sort of like worked um, and like what he's learned each step of the way. Uh, and uh, yeah, it I'm, feels like I'm we're fully going. Me too. Definitely. It feels like we're fully entering like phase two. With- mm hmm. With mm. Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ch- Chad, thanks so much for being on. It's been a great chat. Yeah, thanks for having me. I mean, I love Wes Anderson. Love this movie. Love talking about 
my favorite movies. So yeah, <laughs> and where where else can people hear you talk about some of your favorite movies? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, I do a podcast with uh, Mark Watlington, who's been on the show before, and uh, our friend Cody Lunsford, and we um, we it's called Best Pictures. We talk about the Academy Award winner of uh of every year and what we think was actually the best movie of the year uh just for every year we've been alive and darjeeling <laughs> limited was my pick for what was it oh 2007 seven yeah for yeah. 07 uh it's funny because on that show i've picked i picked rushmore and i picked this and for both of those episodes um mark's computer crashed and we lost the recording like at the oh end no of it. So we had to do for both of those episodes, we had to do like a quick like summary. We we're like, hey, we lost the recording, but here's what. We oh, it's the, the most. It, it, yeah, it's the most yeah. dispiriting thing you can do is like, we don't want to do this yep. again. But yeah, we recorded that episode of Doctor's Companion three times, Nick. No, it was <laughs> awful. It broke oh, us. God, the worst. <laughs> so it was good to be on here and like actually have the conversation, even if we had a couple Internet uh, hiccups early earlier in the conversation. But, uh, mm. but yeah, it's good to finally have this conversation on a podcast uh, that'll be released somewhere yeah absolutely um yeah. all right well uh everyone out there listening we'll be back next week um you know wes anderson's next film was technically fantastic mr fox we're not going to be discussing that one his greatest uh, film is technically fantastic mr fox if we're being honest as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's fantastic. It is, it is quote unquote fantastic. Yeah. yeah uh, we will eventually talk about that and Isle of Dogs um, if he ever makes a third film uh, in our animation category. But uh, we're focused mm. solely on his live action films for this miniseries. So next week we'll be talking about Moonrise Kingdom, which came after like a five year gap in uh, having a live action Wes Anderson film. Stop motion takes a long time. Sure does. Yeah. Sure does. Um, so, uh, so that's next week. Uh, in the meantime, check out our Patreon, duelinggenre.com slash support. We appreciate everyone who does that. It really helps this show, uh, keep going. Um, so, uh, yeah, check it out. See if it's worth your time. $5 a month and you get three bonus podcasts a week. Uh, I don't think that there's a better deal in podcasting Patreons, uh, to be totally so. honest. So, I Check don't think out. so. Yeah. Um, so that franchise. So yeah, that's that is. Uh, in case you don't want to do the math, that is twelve podcasts a month. So for five dollars, you get twelve podcasts plus all of the backlog that we have, which is literally, I think, over two hundred or three hundred. Yeah, it's pretty um, easily less than fifty cents a podcast. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, Thanks, Chad. That's very true. Yeah, <laughs> so check that out. Uh, Nick hosts Dueling Genre tonight every week on the Patreon, uh, discussing the, all the latest news in uh, in in pop culture and entertainment. Um, and that's a really fun show with a revolving panel of Dueling Genre hosts. I'm on it occasionally. And uh, if he's ever out of town on the weekend, I'm sure I'll be hosting uh, oh, yeah. those episodes. Yeah. So you have um, to look forward to. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so uh, point is, lots of stuff. Um, so check it out, please. DuelingGenre.com slash support. We appreciate everyone who does that. It's really important to us. And uh, thank you so much for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Oh, Champs-Élysées. Oh, Champs-Élysées. Au soleil, sous la pluie, à midi ou à minuit, il y a tout ce que vous voulez aux Champs-Élysées. Aux Champs-Élysées. Aux Champs-Élysées. Au soleil, sous la 
midi ou à minuit, il y a tout ce que vous voulez aux Champs-Élysées. Oh! 